Our reading today, Genesis 17, verses 1 through 7. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. I believe in the Hebrew that is El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And I make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. There ends the reading of God's infallible inerrant word. That's question, the title of my sermon, what about the children? What about the kids? It's not often asked, but it can be asked in a number of contexts. I think it's pretty obvious the context in which we ask it today. And it ought to be obvious from that passage of Scripture that I just read what the answer is. But I mean specifically, not just children generally, but the children of Christian parents. Think about it this way. Now, this is not, I don't mean this to be a a, a perfect illustration, but I I think it maybe drives home the point to some extent. Let's say you're... um, you're in a restaurant or you're in a, an airport gate waiting for your flight. And you see a family come up, a husband, a wife, and two or three kids or more. And they are a Muslim family. You can tell by the way they're dressed. They're Muslims. Or maybe you see a family come up, same description, but they, they're dressed like Hindus, like they're from India. They're pretty clearly Hindus. So we see a sight like this, and we naturally assume that the children of these parents are Muslims, and the children of these Hindus are Hindu children. But now what if I showed the average person, the average Christian, a photo of a family, and I told them, well, this is a Christian family. Would they, would we naturally assume that their children were, in some sense, Christians? Perhaps even more importantly, would the parents themselves assume that their children, by being virtue of being born into a covenant family, that they are Christians? Again, I realize we're stretching some limits here. And I don't mean to imply that just by being born into a Christian family, children are automatically Christian from cradle to grave. We know there's some things that Uh, The the electing sovereign grace of God has to take place in the lives of children in order to solidify this. But we have a promise here given to Abraham that applies to all of Abraham's offspring. And you say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that Abraham's offspring? Not at, well, I, I don't know the last time you read the writings of the Apostle Paul. Because he very clearly tells us that if we are in Christ, we are Abraham's children. We are the new Israel of God. A pastor friend of mine once remarked that of all the major religious communities, evangelical Christians are the ones who don't know what their children are. They are ignorant of their children's place in God's program, in other words. So they're that way because they are ill-informed about consistent biblical teaching. 
Now, the reading that we had from Genesis states that God Almighty makes a promise to believing parents, a promise to parents whose God is Yahweh, that he will be and is the God of their offspring. So that is one of the major reasons why, in a Reformed church, in terms of the question, what about the children? We baptize the children of believing parents. You know, generally speaking, baptism is one of the most important experiences in a Christian's life. It is, in fact, the sacramental ceremony through which we announce to the world that we have become Christian. And yet for the infants that we baptize, there's likely no decision among, um, by them to become a Christian, at least among the very youngest. And, and for the youngest among them, there'll be no memory probably of the very important day. There's no understanding of what the event even means. But still, we baptize covenant children. Why do we do that? I want to answer that question with four points to you today. Here is the first. We do it because of God's love and care. One obvious reason is because God loves our covenant children. See, you don't have to be an older man or a college graduate or an accomplished musician or even a wise person or even a, quote, good person. You don't have to prove your worth at all. God loves his own people. Notice the qualification there, please. God loves his own people freely, whether we deserve it or not, makes no difference. I remember, and maybe those of you who are parents, you have children, maybe you do too, but I remember the first time I laid eyes on my children when they were born. Within moments of their being born into this world, I saw them and I loved them. I loved my children instantly and freely. My daughters didn't have to earn my love or work for my love or deserve my love. That's the way God is with his children. We don't have to work for his love. We don't have to earn his love or wait for his love. The baptism of infants is a powerful demonstration that God's love is freely given. Now, some people don't believe, some Christians don't believe in what they call infant baptism. We, I say that because we prefer, I think, the term covenant baptism. Because they don't believe children need to be baptized. Baptism, among other things, is a symbolic washing away of sins. So some of our adult-only baptism Baptist friends, they have created a phrase to describe what they believe, or how to explain it, I should say. It's a phrase that's completely unknown in the Bible. And it's, it's completely unknown for the greater part of Christian history. It's a phrase where they classify children as innocent and being before the age of accountability. Innocent and being before the age of accountability. Friends, let me tell you, there is no creature more selfish and self-centered than a baby. They scream when they're hungry. They demand attention. They are the center of their universe. Our children deserve to be baptized because they need to be symbolically cleansed of sin as much as any of us. Human sinfulness is not something that comes to us between the ages of, say, when we learn to walk and the time we get our driver's license. Whatever that age of accountability is supposed to be. It is with us, this sinful nature is with us from the beginning. It's a part of who we are. This is the universal testimony of Holy Scripture. For example, 
Psalm 51, verse 5, for I was born a sinner. I was born in guilt. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. And in the Newer Testament, Paul writes to the church at Rome in Romans 3.23, For everyone, all have sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Notice that he says everyone, we all. He doesn't exclude children. He doesn't say they're exempt until they reach an age of accountability. Everyone stands condemned. Everyone needs salvation, even children. So, These different texts tell us that children are guilty of sin. They, therefore, do have a need for baptism. Now, another thing about children, not only that they're sinful and in need of baptism in this sacrament, they can also believe. You know, a person doesn't have to wait until he or she is an adult in order to follow Christ and trust Christ. In fact, maybe like me, some of you have known children who have had faith far greater than their parents. Maybe put it this way. Let me ask you, when does a baby know that its mother and father loves them? I'm guessing that if you ask any new mother, whether in this congregation or just generally, if their baby understands that he or she is loved, ask them that. She will likely insist that the baby knows from the first moments of life that mama and daddy love that child. Now, children can also know the Lord. They may not fully understand the dynamics of salvation. They may not be able to pick up Burkhoff's or Hodge's systematic theology and read them from cover to cover. But how many adults can say that they fully understand every aspect of the Lord and his work? Friends, the fact is, God in his mercy can reveal himself to anyone at any age in any life. So this is the first reason we baptize our children is because of God's love and God's promise. Secondly, we have the New Covenant or New Testament pattern. In the New Covenant, Jesus commanded us to baptize all nations. Famously, in Matthew 28, he put it this way, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Children are surely part of the all nations there. When Jesus made that command, he didn't make any exemptions. He didn't make any exceptions. He didn't exclude children. You know, over the years, I've encountered, I suppose, well-intended folks who have a principled opposition to the baptism of our covenant children. Many times, they've done that by pointing out that the Bible does not specifically describe the baptism of an infant. But throughout the scripture, it is an assumption that infants as well as older children and adults were to be included, are to be included in the new covenant in Christ. For example, you may recall on the day of Pentecost, I think we read about this some months ago, Peter preached a sermon on the day of Pentecost, and at the end of it, people asked after they heard this this great message that says in in the King James, they were cut to the quick, and they say, what shall we do? That is, what shall we do to become saved? And Peter replied, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. That last statement is probably the most important. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul and Silas are in prison. And I think this was a part of our reading last week, if I'm not mistaken, in one of the readings. 
And they convince the guard of the truth of the kingdom message. And the guard says, sirs, what must I do to become saved? And Paul says in Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. That's not the only time a household, an entire family, were baptized. We read about it and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I don't think there's any doubt that there were children in at least some of the households who believed, including that jailer. If there had not been, then Scripture, I think, would have made it abundantly clear. He would have said, you and your wife will be saved. Not you and your household. Or maybe you and your slave. A household was understood to be a family. So there's that new covenant pattern. But then thirdly, there's the older covenant pattern. In the Older Testament times, there was a ceremony of making a covenant, but it did not feature baptism. For believing families, that ceremony, as most of you know, was circumcision. And we do see very clearly that the infants and children were presented for circumcision. In in reading Genesis, we read how God instructed Abraham that he and his descendants are to present every male child for circumcision when the child is eight days old. Children were included also in the covenant community when God renewed the covenant with them. For example, in Deuteronomy 29, Moses says, Today all of you are standing here on the side of Yahweh your God. Your leaders and your chief men are here. Your elders and officials are here. So are all of the other men of Israel. Notice verse 11 Your children and wives are here too. So are the outsiders who are living in the camps. They chop your wood and carry your water. All of you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with Yahweh your God. He is making the covenant with you today. He is sealing it with an oath. In the Older Testament, the covenant was expressed through the act of circumcision as a symbol of the cutting away of sin. In the New Testament, the covenant is expressed through the act of baptism as the washing away of sin. So if children receive the sign and seal of the covenant in the Older Testament, I don't think you have to have a PhD in logic to figure out that it stands to reason those children receive it in the New Testament. So really, the question is, Not are there specific examples of children being baptized in the New Testament. No, the question is, is there any specific command in the New Testament that would even remotely tell us that children are to be excluded from the covenant sign and seal? Because they certainly were in the Older Testament. And the answer is no, there's no such indication. And then fourthly and finally, there is the custom or the tradition of the church. I like the way G.K. Chesterton put it, tradition is giving your ancestors a vote. See, from the earliest days of the Christian church, I don't mean the early church, I'll say the earliest church, there has been an understanding that there is a continuity. There is an endurance of God's covenant between believers and their children. And for over a thousand years, Christian churches practice covenant baptism without any significant challenge that that baptism should wait until somebody becomes an adult. Nothing like that. St. Irenaeus, one of the earliest church fathers or teachers of the church. Now get this, he was a student of another church father we call Polycarp, who in turn was a student of the Apostle John. Can you imagine that? 
How would you like to have a pastor who was taught by a man who was taught by the Apostle John? I think those are pretty good walking papers and bona fides ordination certificates, okay? He was a student indirectly of the Apostle John. Shortly before his death, Irenaeus, not quite 200 years after the birth of Jesus, he wrote these words about baptism. About baptism. He said, For the Lord came to save everyone who would be born again, including the infants and the small children, the boys, the mature, and the older people. In other words, no matter what your age, God calls his chosen into a covenant relationship. And from Irenaeus' statement, it seems quite apparent that infant baptism was commonly practiced in the earliest years of the church. Origen, another church father, writing about 300 years after the birth of Jesus, said the church received from the apostles the tradition to give even little children over to baptism. That's yet another indication that from the earliest years of the church, infant baptism was commonly practiced. And for the record, the Christian church, again, was over 1,500 years in existence before anybody thought to question this practice. Now, okay, let's say that that in and of itself doesn't necessarily make it right. It's It's entirely possible. It's possible that the Christian church could be completely wrong on this particular point for over 1,500 years. Possible, but friends, simply not probable. Christ said the Holy Spirit would lead the church into all truth. And that's why during the Reformation era, Presbyterians, Reformed, Lutherans, Anglicans withdrew from the Roman Catholic Church because of its erroneous teachings. But not one of those groups ended the practice or stopped the practice or somehow had a problem with the issue of baptizing covenant children. Not one. Now, there was another group later on who broke away from the Protestants. They, called, they came to be called Anabaptists because they insisted that you be rebaptized if you had already been baptized. They believed that the baptism of covenant children was some sort of Roman Catholic hangover. They were the ones who wrongly began opposing infant baptism in favor of what they called believer's baptism or adult-only baptism. So you realize what that's saying. That's the claim that collectively Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, Thomas Cranmer, and anybody else you want to throw in among the great, great reformers of Christian history, they were all completely mistaken about this practice, but only this obscure obscure group of people who lived in, I don't know, Germany, Prussia, Moravia, whatever it was at the time, my, my church history is foggy, that somehow they became right. No, I'm sorry. The Bible is clear. Scripture is clear. God loves our children. The the new covenant testimony is that's the case. We baptize our infants. The old covenant testimony is the same. And then the history of the church following all that testifies to that. I knew a man who had been pastor of one of the churches where I was pastor when I was first ordained. It was here in South Carolina. He was there several years before me. And he told me of a man and his wife in that church who were childless and who wanted desperately to have their own children. Well, they went through all of the medical and scientific and technological efforts to do that, but nothing, nothing worked. 
And then they went through a number of adoption agencies. That didn't work out either, at least not initially. Until one day, they, they were made aware of a very unique adoption opportunity. Only it wasn't a child. It was a set of four siblings. Four sisters ranging in age from just a few days old to age 13. Four sisters who had the same mother, but each had a different father. The oldest of them had been in and out of trouble. The poor girl had experienced abuse that no child or even an adult should have had to endure. The youngest, the baby, still had a blood system full of illegal drugs because of her mother's drug abuse during the pregnancy. The middle-aged children, well, they were all very difficult to to manage. They had been shuttled back and forth between various foster families. Well, my pastor friend was in the courtroom the day those four children were adopted by these new parents. Their mother had given them up to custody, and the judge proclaimed that they were now members of this new family. That Sunday, following the court action, the family gathered together in the church for a baptismal service. All four of those girls were baptized. So, in the courtroom, the new mother and father promised to love those children, whether they deserved it or not, whether they were easy to love or not, and whether they were pleasant children or not. And later that week, around that baptismal font, Yahweh promised to love those children, whether they deserved it or not. Why do we baptize children? What about the kids? Because God's promise was and is a promise to families, not just individuals. Because God's covenant graciously includes those who do not deserve it. And because baptism is not so much a sign of what I've decided. Rather, it is a sign of what God Almighty has decided. Because the love of God for his own people doesn't wait for some mythical age of accountability. And so we celebrate with great joy and thanksgiving the baptism of the children of believing parents. Let us pray.